invite you to turn in your sanctuary Bible or to your own Bible, page 479, to Nehemiah chapter 8. And uh, we'll be reading verses 1 through 3, 5 through 6, and 8 through 12. And that is the reading that's been prescribed by what, we, by what we call the lectionary, which is a cycle of readings that repeats every three years. And uh, just as an aside, I want you to be suspicious because there's some gaps in our reading today. And I want you to be suspicious whenever somebody tells you to read part of the Bible but to leave parts out, right? But investigate it for yourself. Basically, the parts we're leaving out are the long list of names of some of the Levites that are very difficult to pronounce. And uh, so there's no theological content being, being lost today. But really, be suspicious uh, when, when parts are left out. But in this case, uh, the flow of the reading goes a little better without those parts in. I want to say a few words of introduction about Nehemiah and our reading today. Uh, this, this reading is set in Jerusalem sometime in the 5th century B.C. We're not exactly sure when, but in that time frame. And Ezra and Nehemiah both were part of a movement to reestablish Jerusalem and the temple after the king of Persia permitted the Israelites to return. One of the tasks that they had to do was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that they could protect themselves from the people who had taken up residence in the land after the people of God had been expelled from it and taken off as captive. And so they had to protect themselves and they built the walls. And there was opposition to them building the wall, even though they had permission from the, the king of Persia, the royal decree, that they could do so. And so you read in Nehemiah that some of them were, they had a sword at their side and a, a sort of carpenter's blocks and other equipment on their other side. And they had one hand on their sword and one hand they were putting bricks on the wall because they were protecting the building of this wall and the, sort of the revival of their city and of their life together as God's people. However, once the wall was completed, Ezra and Nehemiah took the opportunity to mark the occasion, and they did that by having what we're going to we'll see right in our passage today. They had the book of the law of Moses read out loud to the people who were gathered there. And so they marked the occasion of the completion of the wall by the reading, the public reading of Scripture. I like that. I think that's great. That's a great way to sort of mark the, the conclusion of something that has been guided by God. But this was a challenge, as we're going to see. The challenge was that that law, that book of law, was probably, we're almost certain, was written in Hebrew. However, by this time in the life of the people of God, most of them didn't speak Hebrew as their mother tongue. They spoke a related language called Aramaic. Similar, but different enough that you'd have a hard time following along. Aramaic was the language that covered a big part of Mesopotamia at that time. And so it was the common language of trade, of, of, of uh, culture, uh, moving back and forth. And so uh, the Levites, whose names we're going to omit today, had as their responsibility, because they were the priestly class of the Israelites, to interpret and translate that word as it was read out loud to the people around them. So you can kind of imagine somebody standing up on the wall, reading from a book in Hebrew, and a bunch of Levites in smaller groups and clusters saying, okay, that meant this, and telling the people what it meant and how to interpret it. And so that's what happened, as we'll see in our scriptures. 
Nowadays, I think, I, I know I am, we can be thankful for this vast amount of linguistic scholarship that has translated the Bible from its several original languages into one unified language for us. English, or whatever your native language is, whatever language you grew up with, there's almost certain to be a translation of the Bible into it. And there's been a lot of great scholarship over the years of people interpreting the Bible and teaching the Bible and putting it all into perspective so that we can understand it. However, and this is a, a more about the denomination that we're a part of, the tradition of the covenant church, every believer is responsible for reading the Bible themselves and interpreting it for themselves in community with other people so that you say to each other when you're reading the Bible and talking about the Bible, one of the great phrases as part of our tradition, where is it written? Where is it written? Tell me where you, how you understand that and let's reason together so that together as community we can come to understand scripture together. So this is a passage that has to do with God's word and the rediscovery of the joy of the beauty of God's word and what it does to people when they, they rediscover God's word. So here's our reading, page 479, Nehemiah 8. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you especially today for your word your word that we rediscover. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think we understand what's happening here. The Bible, part of the Bible is read. The book of the law of Moses is read. The people hear it. And it has this, perhaps, we think, unusual effect on them. What's the one effect on them that maybe surprises us, leaps out at us? 
grief. They experienced, they started crying when they heard God's word read aloud. Now, why were they crying? Why were they weeping? Why were they told to be joyful? Well, we don't exactly know, but we're going to get at it. We're going to get there. We have a sense that for some, this was a rediscovery of the beauty of God's word. This was like somebody who was parched for God's word. Maybe there was some place where they just weren't able to access God's word over all these years and generations. And finally, somebody read it out loud for them and somebody explained it to them. And maybe a lot of them were going, this is amazing. Why have I never heard this before? Finally, I understand it. This is so great. And so maybe those were tears of joy, possibly. Um, These people were certainly interested in what was going on. It says that the, the word was read aloud from daybreak, which is about 6 a.m., till noon, six hours. Um, should we try that someday uh, here at the church? We could. I mean, we could. I, I, I'm halfway serious. So could, could we read the scripture for six hours straight with everyone standing up? Uh, we stood while the scripture was read just now for two passages of scripture. And could we sit attentively for six hours while somebody read the scriptures to us? Hmm, maybe, maybe, but... Uh, maybe we should try. I don't know. Well, we'll see. Uh, but evidently, it was, I think it was. It was like water to a parched person. It was like a feast in front of somebody who had not had a feast all their life. They, they, they were just, they, they uh, were eating it up. Um, there's another case. Now, there's a similar case in Scripture where the word is rediscovered. Some of you may remember this. It happens during the reign of King Josiah, which was a few hundred years before this story. They found a book of the law while they were doing repairs, evidently a book that that was the only copy they had. They didn't have other copies of this book. And so um, they found this book. Now, I I just want you to imagine for a second that maybe you moved to Key West and you uh, you bought Hemingway's old house. Maybe it had been a little bit run down, and so you were able to buy Hemingway's old house. And you said, this place is a little run down, so I think it's time to remodel the old Hemingway homestead here. And so you set about remodeling the house, and you you say, well, let's knock down this wall. It's not a load-bearing wall. And so you take apart this wall, and inside the wall, you find a manuscript of a Hemingway novel that's never been published. And you could tell from the date it was when he was at the peak of his career, like when he was really writing the good stuff, Right? That's kind of like what happened to King Josiah. They were doing renovations, and they found this book. And they're like, what is this? Do you think, I know some people who would listen to Hemingway's previously undiscovered manuscript being read out loud for 60 hours. Maybe one or two of my college professors would, you know. I don't know if the rest of us would, but they'd be like, what? That's what happened to King Josiah a few hundred years before this, is they found this book of the law, they took it to the king, they read it to him, and it says that he tore his robes. He tore his robes, which is another way of saying he, he totally repented. He was like, this is horrible. It's, great. it's a great reading, but it's horrible because what we're doing right now looks nothing like the law of God. That was, it was probably the same book. It was, says in Second uh, Kings chapter 22 that it was a book of the law of Moses that King Josiah's workmen found. And here are the, some of the things that King Josiah did after he had the law read to him and he tore his clothes. He took the idols of Canaanite gods 
out of the temple where they had been installed. Doesn't that sound funny? Like, why were they there? It goes to show just how far they had gone without God's law to guide them. Without God's law, uh, a few idols got brought into the church. And, you know, maybe somebody said, well, let, let him bring his idol in because we don't want to offend him. So, you know, let's let, let's let that guy bring his idols and let's let this person bring their idols. And before long, the place is full of statues and crazy things. And so jo Josiah says, this is nuts. This is crazy. This stuff does not belong in the temple of the Lord. So he takes that stuff out and he breaks it, in the, smashes it into pieces, burns it all, and throws the ashes into the Kidron Valley, which is just outside where the temple is. One other thing that he did was he closed down a brothel that was inside the temple precinct. I'm going to say, yes, thank you, Bud. Bud goes like this, what? What? I am not making this up. There was a brothel in the temple precinct. How did it get there? What in the world is happening here? He's like, yeah, we've got to close the brothel down now because the word of God says that you can't. The word of God nowhere says you can't have a brothel at the temple. That's just obvious from all sorts of ways of reading God's word. How far had they gone that this wasn't obvious to them? I mean, just think about it. How, it's like a frog getting cooked. Do you know this story, you know? Throw a frog into a pot of boiling water. Well, he'd probably just die, but he might jump out because you're like, ah! I don't know if this is true. Any biologist? What if you turn the what if you just turn the temperature up by one? This is it's like an urban legend. Is it true? Anyone? I'm not going to go home and try it. It's, I'm not. But but the the image is there. Slowly but surely, God's people somehow began to think that foreign idols in their temple was okay. That a brothel right next door to the temple made sense, and it was a it was a spiritual brothel. It was a brothel for the servicing of the pagan priests who did things at the temple. Crazy. Anyway, he went on. He, took, he, he destroyed all sorts of other idols all throughout the land, and he tried to bring the country back into alignment with God's law. And he just didn't know what God's law was. He had inherited a country that was deep into idolatry and didn't know it. And um, things crept in. And he was so deeply grieved at reading this book to find that he and his people were so far away from God's design. I think this is the sense I get that the people who heard it when Ezra and Nehemiah had it read was maybe something of the same. There might have been joy. The sort of, there might have been some weeping at like, this is amazing. I can't believe that I, I get to hear this finally and how beautiful it is. But I also think the people were weeping for much of the same reasons that Josiah tore his robes. They said, this is God's law. We are so far from this. Whatever can we do? We're so far about it. So, so far from it, pardon me. And we understand in the New Testament that the law has this power when it's read, when we understand it. It has this power to give us what we would call godly grief. That's a good kind of grief. It's a, you can read about it in the scriptures. There's, there's some kinds of grief that are about loss. There's griefs that are about losing something that you can't get back. Godly grief is a little different. Godly grief is when you evaluate your life in the context of God's law and you find yourself wanting. That's a good kind of grief to experience. It's a kind of a grief we all should experience. And Paul talks about the law in Romans, for example. He says the law doesn't make you righteous. 
The law never can. It never was designed to do that. The law only tells you that you've fallen short and that you need a Savior, you need a Redeemer. In fact, he says the law is kind of dangerous. The law can actually get you to do some sins that you had never dreamed up before. You know, oh, the law told me not to covet. Now I'm really starting to covet. Gosh, I wish, the God, the law, I, wish I hadn't been exposed to the law. No, Paul says, the law is good. It's from God. It drives us to repentance. It drives us to the cross. It drives us to Jesus. So the law is dangerous. It gets us to reflect on ourselves. And uh, we kind of go like this. This is the, can you do this? Like, you don't do it, don't do it super hard. Just, I don't want anyone to be injured, but just go, ah, like this moment that you have, like, ah. And, and I think one of the great gifts in life is not only being able to forgive other people, but to forgive yourself in the sense that you receive from God truly and with your heart that he has forgiven you. So that, yes, you'll go like this, but you'll also go like this, and you'll receive this grace that flows out of God, that flows down from the cross of Christ into you. So, just to go back to Josiah for a second, when you read 2 Kings 22 and 23, you find out that it actually is too little, too late. They get the law, they start transforming, they start reforming their society and their practices, but it's just not enough. It's not soon enough, it's not enough, it's not gonna make it. And as you read about Josiah, uh, he dies tragically, um, and the people of God, shortly after that, are taken away into captivity. And it's almost as if God says, you've just gone so far, and the only way this is going to get fixed and redeemed in the end is if you actually get conquered by this foreign empire and taken away as captives and then are brought back here someday. And that's what happens. And so now we come to the place where they have been brought back, and God is ready to start something new with these people. And so when you read this in Nehemiah, a similar story, you get the sense that it's not too late, that there's hope, that there's joy. And that's what the, the, the people, the Levites and all the rest are saying to the people who were listening. Yes, we know you're grieving. Yes, we know you're going like this. But be joyful. Be glad. It's not too late. Go and make a feast for yourself and eat and drink and be merry and give some food to the people who can't prepare a feast for themselves. This is a day that's sacred to God. He's giving you this word as a gift, not so that you'll be stuck and doomed, but so that you'll be freed to new life. That's what this is for. And so I want to suggest a word. A word just comes out of this for what the people were experiencing. And I would put together the words grief and joy, and I would put a little dash in between them. And I would say that the people, when they had this experience, they had an experience of what I would call grief joy. Grief joy. It's, it's two feelings at the same time. And, you know, what's the, can, the question is, can you feel two things at one time? Can you have two emotions at the same time? Right? I think it is. I think it's possible to have several feelings at the same time. I know that, for example, I left California a long time ago. I don't remember how long ago. It was a long time ago. And I left for Minnesota to start seminary. And I left behind a career in, in, 
as an engineer. I left behind a lot of dear friends. I packed up my car with very few possessions, uh, and then I sent two boxes ahead. And I traveled to Minnesota to begin a new phase of my life. And I was experiencing sadness and loss of this life here and dear friends that I was going to miss. But at the same time, I was experiencing joy and anticipation and excitement about what was ahead and what God had called me into. And so I can totally get that you can feel two things at the same time. Um, I have a friend who told his fiance when they got engaged that he was so happy to be engaged to her, but at the same time he was grieving that he, that meant he was no longer able to pursue anyone else. So, so that was actually more of an intellectual statement. He's like the smartest person I know. He's the smartest person I know. Romance is not his strong suit, you know. And he said, you know, he, he told her making a decision cuts off other possibilities. And he pointed out that the word decide comes from the Latin word to cut off. And she was not amused by his honesty or the lesson in etymology. Wrong time to be. And so one of the things we're teaching our children is that sometimes we keep our thoughts to ourselves. <laughs> but he experienced two feelings at the same time, didn't he? Happiness and grief. And, and he, was just too on, he was just too real, right? You know, just too honest. And, and, you know, she got past that. They have beautiful children. They're happy. She knew what she was getting into. I don't think it was a huge surprise. I think maybe she wishes that... The day of their engagement had gone a little differently, but I think, I think she learned to... It's okay. It's all good. Uh, so I think it's possible to have grief joy. And I think that's what the people had there. Grief joy. When you hear the scriptures and you're convicted of your own failures, but yet in the scriptures you hear the promise of redemption and second chances. And my hope for us is that we actually experience grief joy pretty often. My hope is that that becomes part of our lives. My hope is that we have the startling and jarring rediscovery of the beauty of God's word. And many parts of the scriptures will do this for us. And that they will also cut into us and open us up to God's reforming work in our life. So one, one example would be to read the Ten Commandments. Right? And evaluate our conduct related to it. Or the short form of it would be to ask, you know, as, as Jesus sums up the commandments... Have I loved God above all things? And have I loved my neighbor as myself? And to which I would add, have I loved myself as God loves me and found my value in God's love for me? I want you to look in your bulletin real quick. At the last page of your bulletin, we have something called the Compass for Community, which is in our church, we've agreed is our set of rules that we want to live by. It's going to guide us in the way we interact with each other. And, and actually, that list, which we're not going to go through right now, that can serve as a good examination of our conduct. But I want to be clear, those things are not Scripture, but they are inspired by Scripture. They come alongside Scripture. They are in line with Scripture. But there's a reading below it, Colossians 3, 12 through 17. And that's part of that uh, compass for community that we use together. And I want you to look at it with me. Just follow along. And I'm going to read part of it, starting at verse 12. And I'm going to examine myself uh, and invite God's law to evaluate me and see if I'm found wanting in any way so that I might experience godly grief over how far my life has 
shifted away from God's priorities for it. Verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion. To which I would ask myself, have I been a compassionate person? Have I cared for others? Have I been able to enter into their brokenness and their pain and their lack? Clothe yourself with compassion and kindness. Have I been kind? Really kind to other people. And humility. Have I been humble? Or have I been obsessed with my own reputation, what people think of me, that people should think highly of me? Or do I think that I'm better or stronger or smarter or richer than other people? And gentleness. Have I been gentle to other people? Have I held my tongue and not wounded them? And patience. Have I taken the time to listen before I talk? Have I sought to understand another person first? Have I entrusted my cares and worries to God? Can I take the moments when I have to wait, especially at traffic lights, as a gift from God to redirect me to Him? Am I patient? Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Have I forgiven other people, whether they asked for it or not? Have I given lip service to forgiveness and continued to harbor anger at another person? Have I experienced the true freedom that comes when I truly forgive? Or am I stuck thinking about a wrong someone did to me over and over until it consumes me and I seek out ways to get them back? And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Do I love people who I do not get along with? Do I love myself above all things, even God? Do I care more for dissension and getting my own way than the unity of the body? That examination is all about something that could lead us to grief. I I experienced grief, honestly, when I wrote this down. I experience grief just now reading it out loud because I know my conduct is not near to the word of God. I'm experiencing grief, but now there's joy. And let's keep reading so that we can get into grief joy. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. Just like Ezra and Nehemiah said, this is a day that's sacred to God. Be joyful. Do not grieve. The promise of the gospel is, among other things, that peace with God and peace with each other is available to us because all the sins that cause us grief have been nailed to the cross of Christ. Verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. But here is where we live together in community. There's a joy that we can have that we can be teachers of each other, admonishing each other with the word and worshiping together and asking each other the questions like, where is it written and how goes it with your spirit? There's a a role that we have in each other's lives that centers around the word, but there's a joyful spirit that we can have as people who are guided by God's word. Verse 17, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, to God the Father through him. To which I would just add, thanks be to God for his word. And thanks be to God for grief joy. 
I have a hope for us this week, all of us, every week this week, to have some good grief joy when you go home this week. I want you to rediscover the breathtaking beauty of God's word. I want us to examine ourselves against that word and grieve if necessary, and then that we would enter into the joy of the promise of the gospel, like we just heard it for the first time, like thirsty people drinking a cool glass of water. And may God give all, this, all of this to us. He surely wants to, if we will receive it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for your word. And we pray that we take it in, that it shape us, form us, and give us hope. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.